Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine and More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Steve Bannon is the only person who's outright refused to engage with the committee. He thinks that if he simply obstructs Congress by not showing up, he'll escape the consequences. But as Theodore Roosevelt said, no man is above the law and no man is below the law. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week of push coming to shove as a series of high-stakes disputes moved to an endgame with no clear picture of how they would come out. The House voted to hold Trump confidant Steve Bannon in criminal contempt and referred him to the Department of Justice for prosecution for noncompliance with a subpoena from the January 6th Select Committee. Not just the efficacy of the committee's investigation, but Congress's status as a co-equal branch seemed to be riding on the outcome. The department, however, has not followed through on such a referral in at least 50 years. On the other hand, it hasn't received one of such importance and with such a weak claim of executive privilege as Bannon has advanced. Meanwhile, all 50 Republicans in the House refused to permit the Freedom to Vote Act, a voting rights bill that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin helped craft to come to a vote. And the cry went up from many quarters that the time has come for filibuster reform and that for the Democratic Party and the country, the issue is an existential one. And in his first ever oversight hearing as Attorney General, Merrick Garland drew and brushed aside criticism from left and right alike. In particular, Democratic grumbles are growing louder that the department is moving too slowly against the January 6th insurrectionists and not forcefully enough against Trump and his circle. To run these critical issues to ground, we have a fantastic panel of Talking Fed favorites and regulars. And they are... Laura Coates, a CNN anchor and senior legal analyst, serious XM talk show host and author. She served as a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ during the Bush and Obama administrations. She hosts the daily talk show, The Laura Coates Show, where she discusses politics, law and pop culture. I've been a guest and it's a terrific and wide ranging hour. In 2016, she wrote the best selling book, You Have the Right, A Constitutional Guide to Policing the Police. And Laura, you've got another book uh, in the works or just about to come out. Yes. Yeah, it's called Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. And it's really a narrative memoir about my time at DOJ and a call to action. Great. All right. Well, so we will look for that in January. Is that right? Absolutely. Matt. M. Miller, the M is for MVP. He's a partner at Villanovo and former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. He's also a justice and security analyst for MSNBC and has written for a wide range of publications. Thanks, as always, for joining Matt Miller. Thanks, as always, for having me, Harry. And... Senator Al Franken, who served as United States Senator from Minnesota from 2009 to 2018. He currently hosts the Al Franken podcast, one of the smartest and funniest podcasts out there. And he also has a YouTube channel that you should subscribe to. I think your very first YouTube, if I'm not mistaken, you catapulted in the 21st century yesterday. Yes, Senator, with a uh, 
YouTube about the filibuster. As everyone knows, he had previous stints as a writer, comedian, and author. We are really privileged that he's returned several times as a guest. God only knows why. Senator Franken, thanks so much, as always, for returning to Talking Fits. My honor, Harry. Thank you. So let's jump right into the ban and contempt referral. The select committee subpoenaed the flamboyant Mr. Bannon, who refused to comply, and the House has just voted to refer him for criminal contempt. A handful of Republicans joined. So now it goes over to the DOJ. Merrick Garland in his oversight hearing played his cards very close to the vest. What do we think is going to happen there? Not, not simply bottom line, but what's the basic process and timeline now that it's at the department. Matt, let me ask you to start there because of your department experience. Absent any intervening event, by which I mean some action in the courts, uh, I think they're going to indict him. Look, he doesn't have much of a defense. And I say that because it's important to note that you've seen heard a lot of talk about the kind of you know, ridiculous executive privilege claim that the former president has tried to make. But I think it's important to note he hasn't really made it in a formal way. Bannon's attorney has said that, but the president hasn't sent a letter to the House, to the committee. He hasn't uh, gone to court to try to quash the subpoena the way he did with respect to documents. You know, there's this lawsuit that the president filed trying to prevent the archivist from turning over documents from his White House to the committee. But he hasn't done anything to try to block Bannon's testimony. So there is no bar on the Justice Department prosecuting. There's no pending civil litigation that they need to be respectful of. The only thing that would really slow them down would be their own internal machinations over whether a former president ought to be able to assert executive privilege and whether he ought to be able to do it over someone who wasn't even in the administration at the time when the current sitting president has said no. And I think in that circumstance, it's hard to see the department waiting or not indicting him because absent this executive privilege claim, it's entirely clear cut. He got a subpoena. He could have shown up and claimed some privileges on some questions and answered others. He didn't do that. He thumbed his nose entirely at the committee. It's hard to see a case more ripe for prosecution by DOJ than this one. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I I keep hearing that phrase, thumb the nose, and I use it myself. But I really feel like over the past several years, they've been extending a finger more than they've even been thumbing the nose, right? And this idea, it reminds me of that episode from The Office when Michael Scott all of a sudden says, I declare bankruptcy. And he thinks that's how one declares bankruptcy. (laughs) It's all happened. And you really can't just say without having support for assertion of privilege. You actually have to prove that you have some valid assertion of privilege. And even then, it doesn't mean that you don't have to show up and answer questions, even as simple as what is your name? Or when you said the following podcast statements, what did you mean? Or who were you talking to? Or you've already publicized most of the things that you want now to be held somehow sacrosanct. I mean, if it was an attorney-client privilege, If it was a spousal privilege, you still got to show up and you look at this and just think to yourself, you know, thank goodness, first of all, that Congress decided to show their power as a co-equal branch of government, because if they're not going to essentially make the stand and take the stand that prosecutors like Harry, you know, we have in the past. I mean, I didn't hand out subpoenas with a, a piece of candy. It came with a squad car if you didn't want to come. It wasn't optional. But you never had to use the squad car. That's the novelty here. Yeah. You didn't have to. And that's the thing about it. And there was a time when Congress even 
hinted at a request, we all assumed it would be followed. And now this is that assertion, not just of the privilege argument, but the reaffirmation, I think, of congressional power to say we have an investigative and we have a legislative function and we can't do one without the other. Also, it wasn't a handful of Republicans. It was nine to a handful plus four exactly. in, by my and calculation. Still, but, but it still leaves one finger free for <laughs> you can guess what. I mean, go one ahead. One finger yeah. free. But here's the thing. I can't think of a more important case. I mean, if you don't do this, who's going to show up? Why would anyone ever show up? This is an insurrection <laughs> that he pretty much clearly had some part in organizing or encouraging. It was, seems like he was at headquarters <laughs> for the insurrection at the Willard, I guess. And if you don't do it on him, no one will show Why would anyone want to ever show up? This is the most serious attack on our democracy since the Civil War. This is the beer putsch. You don't want to throw around names like Goebbels and Himmler and Goering. You don't want to throw those around because the logical inference is you're talking about people who exterminated people. But this is close. I mean, this is as close as you get. This is overthrowing the government. What's Merrick Garland saying? If I'm saying like, eh, in this case, no. I think it's got to be a little bit more serious. So that aspect of it couldn't be more important to know. As you and Laura both say, if not here, when, as Schiff said yesterday, we're not a co-equal branch. Now, I agree with everything everyone has said, but I think it's way more complicated. Notice, and you know this well, Matt, from 2008, when they tried to do it with Eric Holder, it didn't happen. This has not happened since, I, by my reckoning, 1960. Moreover, remember OL, good old OLC memos and not indicting the president? There are OLC memos that say we're going to interpret the law not even to cover Motions for referral involving executive privilege by executive branch officials. We're not in that business at all. And it would be unconstitutional if we were. Now, I want to hasten to add exactly as you all three have said, there's a way out basically in these other memos, but we're talking Ted Olson, Walter Dellinger, Steve Bradbury, But in all of those, at least there was a determination within the executive branch that it was a legit claim of privilege. And here, as you say, it hasn't even been asserted, which was the trick, by the way, they did for years. Well, maybe it could happen, so I'm not going to show up. But this, to me, is right at the sort of seam of Garland, the cautious institutionalist on the one hand, but the doer of justice, this was a heinous act on the other And it's more of an obstacle course, I think, than people realize. But let me ask you something. Does Congress have no? That's right. To force it, the law says it's your duty and you must. The very first thing DOJ said when they passed it is, "Uh uh-uh. And you heard him say it yesterday. It's our discretion here. So it really doesn't matter that Congress says it's your duty, even though, come on, we're Congress. That's true. 
That makes sense because if you think about this in the criminal context, you can liken the congressional report about the circumstances to which they requested the subpoena, the diligent efforts they made to seek compliance, the person's decision and efforts not to comply. You can liken that with the report that was referenced or referred from the select committee to the overall chamber, kind of like a police report. And then you hand it over to the DOJ and you say, here, I'd like you to refer this to the grand jury. And even if a grand jury were to choose to indict a particular charge in a case that you have, the discretion still lies with the prosecutor because there could be some instances, as you know, what can come in before the grand jury is kind of the smorgasbord, the free-for-all of a lot of things. What could ultimately actually end up as evidence in a court of law and a trial could be different. So you could see in a, just a greater context why discretion of a prosecutor, even when they're handed the cause for an indictment, should last. But this, this feels different because it's not initiated with a police officer. It's initiated with a co-equal branch of government, and it's the executive branch who is trying to stifle that or undermine and hamstring it. And that should be treated differently and regarded a little different than the average discretion from a prosecutor. Matt, please do speak to it. But bring in Eric Holder. You were intimately involved there. It was similar. And to the senator's point, DOJ didn't say, oh, you say we have to? Okay. So you were right in that a number of executive branch officials have been referred over the years to the Justice Department for prosecution for contempt of Congress, including Eric Holder. And the reason the Department of Justice hasn't prosecuted those cases is because the Office of Legal Counsel wrote an opinion binding on the executive branch that says DOJ will not prosecute someone for refusing to testify when they're refusing because of an assertion of executive privilege by the president. Well, guess what? The president has not asserted executive privilege. Donald Trump is not the president. Joe Biden has. And the White House counsel, Dana Remus, wrote a letter to Steve Bannon's lawyer telling him the president's not asserting executive privilege and you need to show up and testify. Now, Harry, where I think you're right, there will probably be some internal machinations inside DOJ. There are executive power maximalists inside the department who will probably say, let's imagine a scenario in June of 2025, Joe Biden has been defeated. Donald Trump is the president. There is some kind of uh, witch hunt by a Republican House of Representatives to subpoena Biden administration appointees, and Donald Trump won't assert executive privilege over them. We want you to still have the ability to do so. And that will be a judgment call, but really, that's as much a judgment call for Joe Biden as it is for the Justice Department. If the president is saying, I don't care. I'm not asserting executive privilege for this witness. There's no reason I think the sitting Department of Justice that works for Joe Biden and matters of policy, and this is a matter of policy, it's not just a prosecution question, needs to really care about what Donald Trump has said. And and I hope that they will respect the fact that the sitting president has said he needs to testify and take that into account when they try to work their way through this executive privilege mess. Agreed. It's interesting, of course, though, because it would be for that very reason, I think, appropriate for the White House to be weighing in. But they've made it clear after Biden sort of stepped in it that it's going to be completely. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's funny. The way Biden answered that question was wrong in terms of saying, yes, they ought to prosecute. But he was well within his rights to say, I'll leave prosecution decisions to the attorney general. But I'm the president. And I have an asserted executive privilege. And when there's not a claim of executive privilege, I think people ought to be held accountable for defined subpoenas. It would have been the same answer effectively, but phrased differently. And I think it's something DOJ ought to respect. We're talking about Steve Bannon. 
obviously. But I do think that the case-by-case analysis of whether to assert executive privilege for statements or conversations from a predecessor is one worth having. And I think what the Biden administration has to look at are, say it is a chief of staff, right? Or somebody who, say, was actually a part of the administration after, I don't know, say 2017, or somebody who was not otherwise broadcasting the statements that were made through podcasts and other mediums. And Chair Benny Thompson went to some length to to put some daylight between, say, the actions of Steve Bannon and the conversations they were having with the committee and conversations they were having with the council for, say, Cash Patel or Scavino or any number of people, right? And there is something to the idea of what President Biden decides to do with respect to asserting privilege. It will impact not just the president, but the presidency. Because you can imagine, you want advisors, you want chief of staff to have these candid conversations with the president of the United States and and for it to persist to some degree, even after they leave office. And so you can see a case by case scenario where there would be the ability and the need, I think, for President Biden to assert some semblance of privilege to protect the presidency. Now, we're not there because we're talking about Steve Bannon, and he, I think, is certainly not in the same line of thinking. But couldn't you see the instances where President Biden could go, look, I know transparency is king. This was, as Senator Franken, you spoke about, this was something very different. It was an insurrection, for God's sakes. We're not talking about a slap on the hand or somebody with a sign outside the Capitol. We're talking about gallows that were built outside. And if the former president was involved in criminal behavior, then you got to account for it. But just like the bald assertion of privilege from Bannon is not acceptable, I don't know that Biden wants to make sort of a blanket statement of, Anything that you talk to a prior president is fair game because the clock's ticking. Not only does that make sense, the Supreme Court, here's the next obstacle when you're there. This is really, I think, more complicated than people are appreciating. Has held. I think it's wrong. I think, Matt, you have to be right. When push comes to shove, there's only one president, only one guy who said take care. But as you know, the the administrative scheme entails taking stock of the former president's views. And the Supreme Court has held that even as against a pushback from the current president, the former can still assert it. I believe that that prevails, but it's one other thing on the very cautious, very thorough, very judicial attorney general's table. But it's not a bar on DOJ prosecuting. DOJ could indict the case. And if Bannon and his attorneys want to bring that prior, I think it was a holding in Nixon, right? If they want to bring that up and try to litigate it, fine. But that need not be a barrier on DOJ acting. So I agree. So let's switch over for a second to Bannon. What is he thinking? Can he hope to win on the merits? Because at the end of the day, he could stall out, but he could wind up in a jumpsuit. So if if they go forward, do you see him capitulating or do you see him playing out the string and actually are having a sort of two year process where he's in criminal trial? I think that, you know, how many times does this guy want to be pardoned, you know? (laughs) This guy is But he is a talker somehow. He loves putting it out there. He's the worst human being. This is about an attempt to overthrow the the U.S. government. He's an attention whore, I think, bottom line. He found his way out of MAGA world and is trying to work his way back into it ever since. And what better? Remember what he did when he first got out of MAGA world? He ripped off MAGA people. That's right. 
And what better way for him to work his way back in than to be a martyr, to be thrown in jail for a month or two, serve his time, and come out as the great MAGA hero? He'd be there for a year, can he? he, Yeah, it could up to a year. Yeah, it could be. Well, then, is Congress wrong for letting him do it? What I hear different chatter online and other places is the notion of the irritation with this. Now, I know you had Congressman Jim Jordan who listed a, a whole line of things of what he presumed Congress should be focusing on or other people aside from Steve Bannon, not in addition to, but aside from Steve Bannon. But you, some part of the electorate look at this and say, if you know that he is attention seeking, if you know this is a transparent attempt to get back into the graces of the MAGA world, then should Congress not be in, as invested? I say they should be because regardless of what's happening on social media, they can't give somebody a free pass when their motivation is transparent. You still have to advocate on behalf of congressional power. But there is a lot of concern among, I think, the electorate that says, come on, don't you see what's happening here? Why are you giving him what he wants, which is the opportunity to use this as an elevated soapbox against Congress? And here's why I think the other 18 witnesses, they've got 19 subpoenaed witnesses. He's the only one who's gone to the mat so far. Does this not sober them up and get back into the category that always did apply here, which is they talk, they make reasonable accommodations. They actually play ball with Congress. And that I think is the game. Totally. The reason to prosecute Steve Bannon is not to put him in jail. That's almost like a cherry on top. It's to send a message to all the other witnesses. So they feel like they have to come in and talk. If you you don't put Bannon in, prison who do you put in prison well no one will come talk to you again Goebbels right that's what I'm saying that's what they're gonna say wait a minute they didn't put him in I don't have to talk it will be used as the whataboutism in a different way but when I talk to people their thoughts are come on don't give him what he wants and you think well this is cutting off your nose to spite your face then if you're not going to focus on this then you have no ground you you are it's a hierarchical government not a co-equal branch if you say never mind, really, what happens to the others? All right. Last question. How quickly do you see this playing out one way or another? How quickly do you see the department dealing with the referral? You guys know all this much better than I do within within the Justice Department. They should do it as fast as they can. Garland must feel that too now. Absolutely. And they can. I mean, it was only a matter of days when there was a referral from, I think it was an EPA administrator official in the 80s, took like eight days to get an indictment, four months to go to trial. It's not like it's the longest thing. You have the report, unlike maybe other times, you've got that midterm election clock that seems to be this sort of Damocles. But once referred to the Department of Justice, elections can happen. Prosecutions can still be independent of whatever elections happen, and they should be. By the way, that EPA administrator, anybody? Anyone know, remember who? One Ann Burford Gorsuch, the mother of, of Neil himself, who I'm sure was seared by the experience. All right. Hopefully, for a few reasons, it will play out quickly. We'll talk about it maybe next week. Let's segue a little bit into Merrick Garland himself and this oversight hearing. So... He took flack from both sides of the aisle, which maybe suggests he's doing a good job. He was 100% cryptic about the Bannon referral, which could be expected, just asserted we have the prosecutorial discretion here. Let me just serve it up. How'd he do? I thought he did fine as someone who's 
helped prepare attorneys general for appearances before this committee. I thought he was fine. It was interesting to watch him. Let me talk about the House Republicans before I talk about Garland. You can tell a lot about what members really care about by the questions they ask and especially by how exercised they get. And I thought the most interesting thing about the hearing was less Garland than the House GOP in that the questions they were most angry about was this letter that Garland sent, not opening investigations, but kind of the potential of opening investigations or coming up with new security protocols around threats and violence at school board meetings. And you had Republican after Republican berate him over that, even though he made clear in the letter and made clear in response to every question yesterday, we are not policing free speech. That's not what we do. We're worried about threats and intimidation. And The fact that Republicans were so angry about DOJ policing those threats and that intimidation, it to me is a piece with the whitewashing of what happened on January 6th. It is becoming a party of right-wing violence where there is a right-wing violent movement inside the Republican Party. And if you think it's separate from Republican politicians, yesterday's hearing was a good sign that it's not, that they feel those people are their base. And in terms of how Garland handled it, I think he was fine. His answers were fine. But I, I find it interesting, as you watch Garland find his way through off, someone who's been out of public life for a while. He was a judge. That's very different than being someone who is in the executive branch and goes before Congress and testifies. And he's a very mild-mannered, play-it-down-the-books person. But I know, having watched Holder deal with these same types of questions, it does get under your skin and it pushes you to stop taking Republican criticism seriously, and it can push you to be a little more fire-breathing and a little more crusading yourself. And I wonder if this experience he's having with House Republicans, this will not be his only time before them, is going to push him to be a little more aggressive, not necessarily in his decisions, but at least in his public statements and the way he carries himself as AG than he has been to date. Maybe, maybe not, but it's certainly something we've seen with previous cabinet nominees who are in this situation. The approach seems to be, here are the talking points that I want to make sure Attorney General Garland gives me some sliver of, right? The idea of trying to bring in the curriculum, which obviously was in in a way a discussion trying to play upon and soak the flames about critical race theory and what was even being discussed in a way, a backdoor of things of trying to influence that. The discussions about the snitch line, I think Congressman Jordan spoke about trying to give a snitch line against parents who are complaining about policy. It was really an attempt to conflate so many different areas that have become these extraordinary talking points and points of contention, justifiably or not, and probably not on all these points. But it just shows you that the focus was almost like when you do a cross-examination in trial when the prosecutor or or the attorney is simply just speaking and all they want the witness to do is not along an affirmation or give yes or no, because they don't need you to talk. They just want to make sure that there's enough airtime that the jury and the court of public opinion hears them. And I do think that he would likely be increasingly frustrated about that, but it also would play into the hands if he does choose that particular route and, and, and attempts in some way to show that he is trying to react to conservative or Republican talking points more than staying strong and resolute and what he's putting forth. And just finally, this anger about a a snitch line, as was called, about school boards and policies. I don't recall those same members of Congress concerned about the ability of people to complain about others. I don't remember that same conversation happening in Texas 
with vigilante pursuits about having regular people, so to speak, from anywhere being able to complain about what's happening. And so just the lack of consistency is infuriating for so many people, because if you actually do stand for something, then hopefully you're consistent when it applies across the board. Yesterday, it just did not. Senator, you've been there. Can I just ask you, how would it have worked? Matt's 100% right that it seemed like each of those Republicans was in high dudgeon over, I think the uh, repeated talking point was treating parents like domestic terrorists. I assume that wasn't a spontaneous outburst. I assume there was a little caucusing the few days in advance and trying to figure out what talking point's going to work. Oh, I'm Jim Jordan. I'll carry the emotional outrage, et cetera. But what goes on behind the scenes in the few days before the hearing happens and we see a kind of almost coordinated effort to keep banging on the same point as they did? This is what they've become. This is who they are now. They have no desire ever to get to actual truth. They have the exact opposite desire. They have the desire just to whip up their people. That's what Jim Jordan is about. That's what they're all about now. This is just so dangerous right now, who these people are. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And why dangerous? Why dangerous? You saw it, January 6th. And January 7th, there were some people going like, oh, that was bad. <laughs> and like, January 9th, they're going, was it really that bad? <laughs> like, you know, and like, you know, wasn't it more Antifa <laughs> and Black Lives Matter? Weren't the Black Lives right, Matter right. and Antifa there? <laughs> Didn't the Black Lives Matter hide their race extremely well? The Black Lives Matter people. I thought they did. That's that shows you how sinister they That's are. The real problem. They yeah. went in there and appeared to be white. Well, and also Pelosi <laughs> conspired to keep the Capitol Police from being ready for these First Amendment <laughs> enthusiasts. This is a, an extremely dangerous time, and we're like whistling our way there all the time, all the time. We're just. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're acting like uh, brown shirts. And isn't that terrible? What's Merrick Garland going to do? And I say, he's, gonna, he's been a judge. <laughs> it's like, hey, so he took a lot of heat, Diapol and others, about not being aggressive enough. But, Laura, I think you had a point. Well, I was going to ask Senator Franken, you wonder, this seems, and oftentimes in history, as we know, it's the stringing together of moments that can change the course of history. But I wonder, did you see hints of this before now? I mean, January 6th is one thing. Number one, this idea of they're obviously sticking in the party line has been something that's been part and parcel for a long time. But did you see hints of the future of what this now Republican Party is interested in and becoming and doing? Were the signs there maybe even pre-Trump or was that the actual turning point in the catalyst? Because sometimes it's hard for people to imagine that this happened overnight through an election and that there was the decision to sort of pander to the degree and to whistle all the way through tragedy the way you're talking about. Were the signs there and people missed them? Look, I wrote a book, Rush Limbaugh's a Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations. And it's just the disinformation, the willingness to just lie shamelessly. And that's what you saw with Gingrich. That's what you've seen. And you saw McConnell do everything he could do to destroy the institution of the Senate. He filibustered more executive nominees during the Obama administration than had been 
filibuster in the previous entire history of the country. They and the Tea Party and the death panels when we did ACA, the the screaming in August of, of 2009. You know, Chuck Grassley, if you're not willing to stand on principle and maybe risk your political career when you're 87, maybe you're just not going to ever do it. <laughs> I mean, these, these guys have sold their souls. And it is dangerous. There's blood on the hands of Fox News. They are telling people not to get vaccinated. The number one cause of death in America right now is Tucker Carlson. <laughs> it's a good line, but how dare you laugh, Harry? Yes. Everything you say is correct. No, I'm, that was a joke, too. And Matt, Matt smiled, but they're not yeah. Hanging with the oversight here for a second. There was one little revelation. He was mainly completely Delphic and uh, Garland AG-like. But we heard about John Durham, who's had his budget approved for another year. So his work's ongoing, which I think people who know the department would know is no surprise. How's he going to pull that plug? Any chance? Anybody see any chance? Is this the FBI, Russia stuff? Do you think there's a serious prospect of some kind of case coming from the Durham special counsel corner. You mean because he hasn't found it yet? Yeah. (laughs) I think there are two things at play. One, he wants very much to indict other players. And I think his his theory was that Sussman would cooperate and and help him. And, And he wants to indict some other senior players from the campaign. Fairly certain of that. I suspect he won't be able to, but he's trying very hard to to do so. So I think that's still in play and that's why he's still around. But the other thing is, I think it's fairly certain he's going to try to write his version of the Mueller report. And it will look like the section in the Sussman indictment where he had this kind of stuff that was basically irrelevant to the false statements case, but his narrative about all the things he alleges Sussman was doing to deceive the FBI. I think he's going to write a long report that takes all the things he's found that can't make it into indictments because he hasn't found crimes and he's going to turn it into a story that will try to be the right-wing answer to what Mueller found. The question is, will, will Merrick Garland write his own introductory paragraphs and present it at a podium and say, this is the whole report? All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, 
Who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's do a closeout zeroing in on Merrick Garland, as to whom I'm second to no one in admiration, worked with, you know, is really the prosecutor and judge of a generation. But first of all, there was a new kind of criticism that I hadn't heard before, at least from some quarters, that he was looking kind of a little tired, not having fire in the belly. You know, he is going to make some decisions, including how he does in January 6th. We've compared him to Edward Levy from the start, who continues to be lionized within the department. Would you say, looking ahead at what he's got to deal with, that his historical reputation is in some doubt here well, first, you know, as a woman on the panel, I'm sorry that a man's being criticized for looking tired. It's been pretty much the state of affairs for most of us. But, you know, it's interesting. I think that people will always sort of look at Attorney General Garland in a way where they will initially want to say Justice Garland. And it will be the memory of what was done and what was withheld more than his level of aggression towards prosecution. I think what Senator Mitch McConnell did with respect to then Judge Garland will really be the top paragraph line of any discussion about his legacy. And unfairly, because he has a hell of a reputation before then, I mean, we're talking about him as a prosecutor. But I also think another aspect of what I find very intriguing about him is, although he is probably most known before that as his work with the Oklahoma bombers and what would happen there, you know, when he was confirmed, he spoke about how he had evolved in his thoughts towards the death penalty. And I thought that was one of the most important aspects of somebody who was going to take on the role of the attorney general, the thought of how one could adjust and adapt, even with their career having chosen one path and their prosecutions leading to one course of action, and then being open to research open to the full context, the history of the death penalty, the sociological aspects of it, and changing his view towards it. I think that needs to be as much a part of it. And I think it was foreshadowing, frankly, of a contemplative attorney general that he really now is, not being someone who's simply going to have a visceral reaction and go with that, which we don't want that sort of fiery person. We want the head of the Justice Department to be much more contemplative and being willing to hearing the information and evidence And I think people missed that in his confirmation hearing. It really has foreshadowed how he is right now about most things, not being willing to just accept and being more likely to express his contemplation. It's frustrating because you want him to just do, but I think you need more as the head of the Department of Justice. You need more from that person. And I think he is following that to a degree. Ultimately, though, he has to come down on one side or another. I agree. I think he's an admirable guy. And part of what's so admirable about him is his temperament and thoughtfulness and your faith in him as someone who really thinks through things. But he's going to have to make a decision here. And we'll see what the result of 
all that contemplation is. You're right. You can't be so contemplative that it causes paralysis, right? Because there is a clock that's always unspoken. But Matt, I know you've worked with attorney generals in the past too. And of course, Harry, you know, let me tell you, it's the line attorneys who are going to be doing the bulk of the work and, and they'll consult with the attorney general. This is one of those issues. But you want the person who is more of the symbolic prosecutor in the Department of Justice. You want to know what he's going to do. But you also want to know what the U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C. is going to do. Because it's his grand jury or her grand jury is going to be impaneled. And they will have to be the ones to, to make some judgments to refer. And so I think the focus is on Garland. But he's only going to be as good as whatever is presented to the grand jury and the line prosecutor whose job it is to make the case. And I'm more interested to see who that person is than anything else. I don't think he's even begun to be tested yet. The decisions he's made so far are going to pale in comparison to the decisions he's going to make down the road and the pressure he's going to be under. As he makes more decisions that are unpopular with the base of the Democratic Party, he won't feel that pressure from the base because it's not really where it comes from. It's not his people, but the White House will. And that has a way of deteriorating the relationship between the White House and the attorney general. It makes it very tough to do your job. He's got the denouement of the Durham investigation at some point. There's an investigation in Hunter Biden. If Republicans take back either House of Congress, they're going to be demanding special counsels on a number of things and conducting their own investigations and demanding documents. As every attorney general does, he has a very tough road ahead of him. And how he figures out to balance making the right calls with being a public figure in the way an attorney general has to be, something he doesn't seem comfortable with yet, is going to, I think, ultimately decide how he does at the job. Great point. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Like a couple weeks ago, this week we're doing something a little different, which is playing an excerpt from the Talking Books interview this week with Adam Schiff about his new bestseller, Midnight in Washington. As you'll hear in this excerpt, he discusses coming to grips with the amorality and indifference to truth of the Republican Party with whom he had been used to working on a bipartisan basis once Trump comes into office. Maybe the most difficult and sweeping question in the book. You describe the core story that you wish to tell as one about how good people were persuaded to abandon their beliefs and ideology, their dedication to something larger than themselves and their ambition, and came to embrace the ugly nativism that their party had long held at bay. Look, it's, it's in the whole book. But what is your answer in a word about how good people were, in fact, set so far from the, the home base we've always taken for granted of constitutional rule and the, the very idea of truth? You know, I would say, I don't know that I can summarize it in a single word, but day by day and step by step. Uh, the historian Robert Caro once said that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for us our best, but it reveals a lot about who we are. And I watch colleague after colleague, you know, first make small compromises in their ideology or their value system or their morality. And inevitably, Trump would require more and more and more. And before they knew it, you know, they were in with both feet and it was too late to turn back. And so it's a surrender of day to day to day. And, you know, it's a terrible thing to watch. Uh, a lot of these members I had admired and respected because I believed that they believed what they were saying. 
uh, and it would turn out that there was nothing they believed in more than their own position or ambition. It was an astonishment to me how people would be so willing to compromise everything they claimed to stand for just for a seat at Donald Trump's table. But that's what we witnessed. And, and ultimately, after the first impeachment trial, I recognized that there wasn't any flaw in the Constitution. Uh, it's not like I think we should change the impeachment clause to, to make it a majority vote, uh, which would turn us more, more into a parliament. The flaw was in ourselves. The flaw was in the fact that too many members were unwilling to, to give meaning to their oath to uh, inform their decisions by ideas of right and wrong and the truth. Uh, and that's what's put us on such perilous ground. That's just a couple minutes of our interview with Adam Schiff. To hear the whole thing, you can go to patreon.com slash talking feds. Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million health care supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org. Let's spend a few minutes talking now about voting rights and possible filibuster reform. All 50 Republicans acting in lockstep, block a vote on the Freedom to Vote Act, which already is watered down to try to conform to the Oracle of West Virginia, Joe Manchin. So now really push has come to shove. Let's start with Manchin. Is this action by the Republicans not even letting come to a vote his crafted compromise going to be enough to move him into the column of filibuster reform? Boy, is that a good question. And let me explain why. (laughs) Actually, this was a very good bill that he was part of crafting. And he did some actually strong things in this. For example, making Election Day a holiday. That was him. And he worked with Klobuchar and he worked with Warnock. What was interesting about this piece of legislation, it's very different than for the people because it was able to respond to what Republicans did in their state legislatures. So what Republicans did in their state legislatures was literally give the state legislatures the power to overturn elections. And this was something that Warnock especially is focused on because that's what they're trying to do in Georgia. So to me, this was a actually a very surprisingly strong piece of legislation. It was almost as the, for the people, made them tell us what they were going to do to that. And so we flushed them out. And this was the response. And yes, now is the time to modify 
the filibuster a lot. You've got a great proposal. And I think Manchin, you think, is open for it. Just give it to us in a sentence or two if you could. He does not want to get rid of the filibuster, but he's open to modify it. So what Norm Morrissey and I have been working on for quite a while is this. Instead of 60 votes to overturn or end the filibuster, you need 41 to sustain a filibuster. It's the same number, really. But those 41 have to come to the floor, and it has to be a talking filibuster. And they have to keep 41 there, and they they don't have to be the same 41. There's nine extra. Nine can file in and out. But if you do the math, that means they all have to be there about 19 hours a day. And they're not going to do that. I know this. Also, it has to be a talking filibuster. They have to debate. There's a germane requirement, right? They can't read the phone book, right? You can't read Green Eggs and Ham like uh, Cruz famously did. So Joe has been recorded as saying that he's open to this. There was a third-way phone call that someone released, and he basically laid out what Norm and I talked about and said he'd be open to that. And... My question more is whether cinema would be, but this is it. This is it. This is our democracy. Because if we don't do this, they will actually use the state legislatures to overturn the results of elections. They'll give the 11,780 votes to Trump. I was with the voting section in the Civil Rights Division at DOJ and watch it be gutted from Section 5 formula gone to now the idea of Section 2 being really the only way after the fact to try to address voting irregularities and really crimes, frankly. It is something that's so disheartening, and that's the understatement of the year. It's demoralizing for Black voters in particular to have it be chopped away piece by piece, especially since Democrats were so verbose and so clear that they wanted to make sure that they would expand the electorate to have the record numbers of turnout among Black voters, particularly in the South, turning places like Georgia from red to blue, to have this be the area where Democrats can't cross the finish line. It feels equal parts almost like, well, I understand the process and you've got the filibuster and I get that's a creature of the Senate and blah, blah, blah. Then you have the history of how it was used in terms of undermining civil rights. And then you have this notion now of if the Democrats can't get this done when they hold the majority, albeit a slim majority in the Senate in particular, it doesn't bode well for the future of Democratic success at the polls in particular. I mean, how do you convince voters at that point that they should still turn out because you can't do anything on the federal level? The Voting Rights Act has been completely hamstrung. You've got the idea at the state level, as you say, Senator Franken, at the state level, you can go out and vote, but somebody else will decide whether it's counted. Democracy is not in the voting, it's in the counting of those votes. And so I just wonder what the messaging can be if one person or one person's resistance to change the filibuster is enough to undermine so much progress. And President Biden was speaking at the town hall Yesterday about this, the idea of he was open to having it, maybe the way you're talking about Senator Franken or maybe other things. But how do you convince voters that they should still turn out? That's why this is the existential moment. Look, filibuster reform is without a doubt coming. If you look at kind of the underlying tectonic plates in American politics, the radicalization of the Republican Party, the distribution of population so that Republicans are overrepresented in the Senate compared to a share of their actual vote for the Senate, there's no way that it's a sustainable situation for Democrats long term. The only question is when. 
And a lot of people have missed the way Schumer has been maneuvering the Senate towards this question. I think we got a lot closer to filibuster reform than people know last month in the debt limit vote. There's a reason McConnell caved at the last minute. It's because Schumer was maneuvering the Senate to a position that you either end the filibuster, at least for this debt limit question, or the U.S. defaults on its debts. And he was basically playing chicken and putting pressure on Manchin, Sinema, and some of the other senators, and who knows how it would have ended. But I suspect his idea was do it for the debt limit. And then if you've excluded the debt limit, how do you not then exclude voting rights from the filibuster? And so I think those pressures are still there. The debt limit vote is going to be back before the Senate, probably in, it looks like in December. It's all going to come down to a handful of senators and we'll see where they are. But sooner or later, the filibuster as we know it is just unsustainable for voting rights, for the debt limit. I, I think for a number of issues important to the Democratic Party. But voting rights is the most important by far. When are existential, I totally agree. But close out question here. The senator says existential moment. Matt, you say sooner or later. So I think it was a big point at the town hall meeting that now Biden is clearly on board, but he wants everything to play out on the spending bills. Will the Congress or the Senate adhere to that preference and that timing, or is the iron so hot that they will strike now, notwithstanding Biden's preference to wait for the spending bills to pass? We have three things happening at once. It's the debt limit, it's voting rights, and it's the reconciliation package. And it's all coming to a head, and I don't know what order is going to happen. The reconciliation package is the reconciliation package. That means all we need are the 51 with the vice president, but that's in itself mansion and cinema having an outside influence because that's what you have when you only have 50. Everyone has that, but they've positioned themselves in that way. So there's that. And then you can't do voting rights soon enough because these states are locking in. Right. And I think their legal claims will be a little bit stronger federal legislation if they've already started. That is the worry. Senator, can I ask you, you made the point about what you, Norm Ornstein, have been working on that point and that Senator Manchin seemed on board. What's the reason he won't go fully on board? Is there, what's next? Well, I wouldn't say he's on board. You know, Joe is one place one day, one place another Very on a lot of these things. You've seen in the last two days. <laughs> but we have talked about this at quite some length. And he's been very strong in saying that he doesn't want to end the filibuster, but he is open to modifying it. I mentioned earlier that McConnell destroyed the Senate by filibustering. Everything got filibustered. So you had more filibusters of executive nominees than had been done in the entire previous history. What this would do is it would make the filibuster much much, much more infrequent. This would mean that it would restore the filibuster to what it was. Right. When you'd have to get up and debate. The Jimmy Stewart, everything is on the line model, right? That's right. Actually, that's my argument to Joe, which is this is actually what Robert Byrd was thinking of. You know, a lot of people don't realize that when they changed it from two-thirds present and voting to 60 they thought, oh, well, that makes it a lot easier to overcome a filibuster. No, it makes it harder because two-thirds present voting means you could pick a vote when there are only 50 people there. And all you need are two-thirds of the 50. 
and put the burden on the minority to be there. And right now, once you did that and needed 60, you don't have 60 ever. We added 60 for the ACA briefly. So we have to change this thing just to restore the filibuster to what it was supposed to be. All right. We have to leave it there for now. Just one minute left for our final feature. And the question today is from Lori Elnu, as we say in law enforcement, part of a large family, last name unknown, but who asks, what can I do to help save democracy? I'm getting increasingly panicky as Dens appear to be asleep at the wheel. I've been voting for 50 years. I write to Congress. Nobody reads the letters. I'm too old and lame to march or rally, and I don't have a million dollars to buy a senator or two. That would be pretty cheap, wouldn't it, Senator? Yeah, come on. Come on. <laughs> what can I do to have an impact? Five words or fewer, please, panelists. Wait, I got to do five words. Uh, sorry, you have to do it the way it's, and then put dot, dot, dot. Once a senator, always a senator. <laughs> can, can shorten that speech down. I don't, I don't even know if I got five there. I, I got, maybe I cheated too. Vote, organize, donate if possible. Very nice. Oh, there you go. Very good. Much better than mine. The Laura Coates. Vote each day with wallet. Oh, Okay. And I'm going to say work for voting rights bill. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Matt, Laura, and Senator Franken. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters and occasionally for everyone as well, such as our recent conversation with Adam Schiff about Midnight in Washington and with Bob Woodward and Robert Costa about their bestseller, Peril. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal and political systems for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, Adam Macias is our sound engineer. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin, our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ray Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. And our consulting producers are Dustin Naus and Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to Adam Schiff for talking with me on Talking Books about Midnight in Washington, excerpted as today's sidebar. Our gratitude, as always, goes to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.